It's good to be with you all. Happy Mother's Day. I realize for some of us, it's a day filled with joy. And for others of us, it brings up um, pain or grief as you remember mothers who may have passed on or relationships with mothers uh, that weren't as satisfying. Um, and for others of you, um, it brings up longings and hopes, either for your children or for the spiritual children that you've invested in. Um, but I'm grateful uh, today uh, to be with you all. Um, and uh, Julian pointed out, um, I wasn't preaching on Proverbs 31 because I felt quite um, un um, not ready for the task of exposing what a good mom and good wife should be. So I went to chapter before, so a, a prelude to that. But um, optimally, what I hope many of us got from others is a sense of wisdom, and that's what Proverbs offers. And so I thought of a look at wisdom would be good. So let me pray for us, and then um, let's look at the text a little bit more. Lord, I'm grateful um, for the ways that my brothers and sisters at CBC have reached out to their neighbors in this past week, um, even in small conversations, to break uh, through isolation and to say, we see you, uh, we care about you enough to have a conversation with you, uh, and for how for many people uh, during this period, that's more conversation than they've had socially um, that they may have had over several weeks. And so, Lord, um, I pray, give us wisdom today. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to be attentive to your spirit so that we can do what you call us to do and that Jesus Christ can be honored and that we can become more Christ-like uh, in the process. Uh, to you, be honor and glory forever. Amen. As I said, um, it fills my soul to see you all. Um, and in one way, this is the beautiful thing about Zoom because I can kind of um, slip through the various pictures of all of you and actually feel like I'm getting a chance to see you face to face in ways that I might not even do if I were preaching in person when I can interact with a few of you but see all of you in a crowd. So thank you again for the opportunity uh, to be with you this Sunday. I thought after I moved that it'd probably never happen again. And for it to happen twice during the pandemic, at least gives me one reason to give thanks in a difficult time. Um, as we were singing the worship songs today, uh, I thought and was praying for a couple of friends and family that I, who came to mind, who I think are weary, as the beginning of chapter 30 says, right? Um, because chapter 30 begins with, I am weary. God. And I was thinking about my dad's best friend that he grew up with. Um, his name is Albert. Uh, he and Albert grew up in the Philippines together as part of the Chinese community there. Um, my dad remembers sharing um, dress shoes with Albert at key events because neither family could afford dress shoes um, for both of them. And so they would share them. Um, I think there was one pair of nice pants that the two families shared for the boys. Um, Albert was diagnosed with three aneurysms that the doctor said could burst at any time. And uh, Albert's trying to decide, does he go in for surgery now or wait for the pandemic to ebb a little bit so that he could have more support at the hospital? Um, he's waiting and weary with it. Um, I think of my friend Brad, um, who is African-American and particularly, again, in this week, is wondering, is it safe to raise his two boys um, in this country? And what does it mean for them? Um, I think of my friend Brian, who um, identifies as gay, is a Christian, and is choosing to be celibate because he follows Jesus. And, um, but he's lonely, and he's looking for lifelong friendships that will sustain him and community that will be family to him. 
um, not just now, but over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years as God gives him life. I'm thinking about my friend Christy, who's been married for 15 years and wonders if she can make it for the next 40 or 45, because every day is just so hard. Uh, even though there's nothing um, violent or um, inappropriate, every day is a little bit of a slog in that marriage. And I think about these friends um, as we were singing songs about God's control over history, as we were singing about uh, Confidently, God can make all things beautiful, even things out of the dust. And I wonder, what's wisdom for them in enduring and keeping on? What does wisdom look like for us as a congregation? You all have been social distancing for a long time. I know it feels like. Um, I, we're about day 50 here in Chicago. I think you're five or six days ahead of us. And um, it's going to continue a little bit longer. And for some of us, we're doing quite well. Um, for others of us, it's a bit of a struggle, isn't it? Um, it was novel to work from home for a couple of weeks, but for those of us who are on endless Zoom conversations, um, it wearies us. For some of us who are thoroughly enjoying our families, it's great. And for others of us, I suspect it's, I love you so much and I would love to talk to somebody else right now. Um, if you are single and living as a single person, it's been weeks since you've had a handshake or a hug. And that comes with its own cost. Um, I just saw on the internet the other day, uh, the Dutch have coined a word, I wish I had clipped it, uh, for, for skin hunger is what they called it. Just the desire to be held, um, to be touched, uh, to have company. What does wisdom look like now? What is, and wisdom, right, is the way scripture describes practical knowledge to live well. And by well, obviously scripture mostly means to live in God's sight, but how do we choose to live? And I thought, let's come back to Proverbs to look at that. What I find fascinating about chapter 30 as it begins is um, Augur is so honest, right? I am weary, God. And I wonder if for Augur, there was just some deep sense of relief to admit that out loud. I'm tired. Not just sleepy because I stayed up too late or I worked too hard, but I think there's a soul weariness of I am weary, Lord. But then he says, but I can prevail. Surely I am only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down to Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. I think three of the most powerful words that we can say may be some of these, right? The most powerful, I think, three words in the world that aren't God in particular are, I love you, right? There's something profoundly powerful about those three words. I love you. I suspect the second most powerful set of three words um, are closely related to I love you, which is please forgive me. Because often um, once you admit you love someone, um, as all of us know, within minutes, if not at least days, uh, you end up having to say, will you forgive me? Which is the actual bridge that you end up building love on, I suspect. I think the third set of three most powerful words may be this. 
I don't know. I don't know. And this is what Augur does right at the beginning of this passage. He acknowledges his ignorance. He has neither wisdom nor knowledge of God, which is what he's pointing out in verses 3 through 4, which is really an odd confession for the author of part of the book of Proverbs, because you would expect in Scripture the author to say, I know. I'm confident of. I'm sure about. But there's something endearingly human and real about Augur saying, I I don't know. I don't have knowledge. Who could have the kind of knowledge that I need? Who's gone up to heaven and then come down? Well, now, those of us who live on this side of the New Testament read those words, I suspect, and think, oh, I actually know. Um, who has gone up to heaven and come down, whose hands have gathered up the wind and wrapped the waters in the cloak. We know who's done that. But for Augur, he's just saying, I don't know. But I suspect for us, the key to wisdom often is to admit what you don't know. Because when you acknowledge you don't know something, you suddenly can learn. Isn't that true for most of us, right? One of the key tasks of a consultant when you go to um, assess a company, a nonprofit, or church, isn't just to assess what they know, what they think the problem is, but to help them understand what they don't know they don't know. Um, Some of us who do training or education often talk about Johari's window, right, where you look at what you know and what you don't know, and they said the real possibility, but also the real weakness is when you don't know, you don't know. Because if you know you don't know it, you can learn. If you know and you think you know, then you're in great shape. And if you know, but you don't know that you know it, it's an unlearned competency. We can help you. Did you notice how you keep doing that? You're fantastic at this. But when you don't know, you don't know. Um, That's a danger zone. But if you can help people know that they don't know, suddenly the doors begin to open. I think about my daughters, uh, who you've met, Madeline and Kirsten, many of you. Um, The biggest challenge, particularly for my eldest when she's practicing piano or other thing, is to come up to the thing that she doesn't know and get over the hump of her irritation and frustration that she doesn't know it. So I find with her, um, she hates learning a new piece because there's so much she doesn't know about how to do it. And she's just so frustrated. Once she has some minimal competency, she's mostly willing to practice. But it's that initial step of, I don't know it, and it's really hard. But as soon as she can admit, I don't know, and is willing to move into learning, all of a sudden the world opens up. I think so much of what happens in our spiritual formation before God, right, which is one of the three main things that we want to work on as a church of how to grow deeper with God, is experiencing the crisis of it be, of being at a place where Sunday school answers are no longer enough, where the um, easy-to-access truths from youth group are no longer sufficient, And you have to come to God with, I know these things and I don't know so much else. And I just need to sit before you and acknowledge all that I do not know. I don't, what I don't know about you, God, about what you're doing and why you're doing it. I think so much of the relational health that we can experience with one another um, in times like this, I think it's made particularly true is So how do we acknowledge that the person sitting across the table from you is somebody that you may have known for decades, but still is kind of a stranger and a mystery, a person that you need to discover 
and explore, right? Because one of the things that I think most harms our relationships is when we think we know everything about them. We think we know what they're going to do. We think we know how they're always going to respond and the mystery recedes and all of a sudden it's a little bit of boredom or even contempt. I know everything about you. There's nothing left to discover. All of these horrifying experiences point out our need to acknowledge what's unknown, right? Um, because it forces us outside of ourselves, to books, to teachers, to experiences for learning, to silence and scripture for spiritual formation, to clarifying expectations in our relationships and exploring, tell me more, because I think I understand this about you, but I realize I'm just making assumptions all the time. And I think to admit when we're really weary, we're, we don't know why what's happening is happening. It forces us to turn to God. Part of what Augur, I think, points out in this passage as he continues to speak is when you know that you don't know, when you're actually dependent, when you, when you come in, sorry, when you um, come face to face with your own ignorance, suddenly you're dependent on somebody to bring you the answers, which is where he's going in verses three and four. Who, who could possibly know God like this? And the beautiful thing, I think part of what Arger is saying is, you don't know what's happening. I don't know what hap what's happening, but God knows. And when we come face to face with our ignorance, with our not lack of knowledge, suddenly we give a little bit space for God to speak and God to act. Um, how do we engage communities when we're so socially locked down? We're beginning to explore that. But for many of us, I suspect it's, I don't know how to talk to my neighbors right now. I can barely um, get a hold of them. We're all locked in our houses. What a wonderful opportunity to go to God and say, how do I do this? And then to hope that you have an experience like our brother who said, you know, I just moved to this community and I decided to take this challenge and suddenly three amazing conversations happened. How was God at work? What do we do about intractable, impossible problems like the racial crisis that we continue to experience in the United States? What hope is there for my friend Christy in her difficult marriage? The challenge with all of these, of course, is I don't know and you don't know, but God knows. And he may not want, he may not tell you what will happen, but he promises to be with you as you go through it. This is certainly true in my, some of my own decision making when I've encountered imponderables not quite as big as the racial crisis in the world or the pandemic, but even on small things like when I was trying to decide should I get married or not. Um, now, many of you have met Jennifer, and if you've met her and you know me, what all of you are thinking is, boy, if she was even willing to consider marrying somebody like you, you should have said yes, because she was settling a great deal, and you were accomplishing and reaching far higher than you deserve in that relationship. But um, I was far from being a youth at that point, but I was still unsure, and I remember praying and I remember um, asking friends to pray and heard nothing from God. Because really, I, what I, I remember even writing in a journal one day, just tell me what to do. Like, just tell me, yes, go marry her or not. Um, and I'll do whatever you want. And it was as I recognized I didn't know what to do. And as I began to listen more to God, part of what I realized in that process was um, God's silence was quite intentional, because I think at least to me what he was saying is, um, yeah, you would say, you would choose to marry her if I told you to, um, 
because what you want, Greg, is for me to tell you to do something because then you think I will guarantee you a good outcome. What I'm actually inviting you to do, Greg, is take a step of faith. Will you trust me? Even if I don't give you clear direction, will you trust me that I will be with you? Will you trust me that I will shape you into Christ-likeness? Will you trust me with the unknown? And what I wanted to say is um, I would trust you more if you were clear about the instructions, but at least at that point for me, wisdom was, do I trust Jesus enough with the limited knowledge I have to continue to take a step forward? I didn't know what was going to happen. Jennifer really didn't know what was going to happen after we got married, but God knew, and that might be enough. I remember um, an interview with Elizabeth Elliot, who many of us who are a little older will remember, um, a missionary with her husband um, who went to um, South America. Her husband and a number of other people um, were killed in some of those early encounters. In fact, I believe one of the men who... um, killed one of the missionaries, recently just died um, in faith as a Christian. But uh, she'd experienced multiple tragedies over the years, and somebody said, well, how did you get through it? And she said, "Um, I remember in the months after my husband, Jim Elliott, was killed, people said, how can you still have faith? And she said, I'm not sure I do have faith. I'm not really sure what I still know about God. Why did he allow this to happen? What's going to happen to me and my baby daughter? What is going to happen with this work that we're trying to do here um, with this tribal group? And she said what she clinged to in those um, months of wrestling with the unknown was the Apostles' Creed. She said, I don't know much, but here's what I do know. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who is conceived, right? And she just said, I just repeated that over and over to myself, because with all the unknown, here's the one thing I did know. I knew who God was. I didn't know where he was going to lead us. I didn't know who I was going to become, but I knew this. So what do you do? What you don't know? I hope part of what you do is you go to what God has said and who has revealed himself to be. That's what Augur is doing in verses five and six right? When he goes, what is this name of this person who could tell me about who God is? Then he goes, you know what? Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. He says, once I realize what I do not know, once I realize my ignorance about who God is and why he's doing things and why he allows things to happen, he says, what I do know is this, every word of God is flawless. It's a shield that protects me and accompanies me and will defend me. Don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. He says, look, there's nothing that needs to be added to what he's already told us. And the things that we do not know beyond that, we choose to take in faith and to hope and to trust that given what we know about his character and his dealings with the people of God in the past and his promises to the future, that this in-between stage, we have enough direction to know what we need to do. Right? To be wise as a person is to know God and then know how to live appropriately and consistently. Um, And he right often says, imagine that you're in a five-act play, and we have, right, 
um, acts one through three, we know the setup, we know the conflict, we know the tension, and we know how it's going to end, but we, we're missing that, la that fourth act right toward the end of the middle. And he says, uh, what are you supposed to do? And he says, if you're a good actor who studied the play well, you know where you've been and you know where you're going. And so the goal of that fourth act, we're going to improvise and put it together and make it consistent with both what's come before and where we're going to go after. He says, that's what we're doing as Christians in between the time of the New Testament and the time of Jesus' coming. We have Acts 1. We know creation. We have Act 2. We know what the fall is like. We see in Jesus, Act 3, he's come and he's changed the world and invited us to participate. And then he goes, I'm not going to give you detailed instructions, but I want you to know how it's going to end. And he says, in between, improvise. Improvise consistently with the first three acts and improvise consistently with where you know this act is going. And if you do that, you'll live wisely and live well. And so I think of my friend um, Brad, who's raising two young black boys at this, in this culture and time, living between what he knows about those first three acts of what God has done and where it's going to go, and he's living intentionally and faithfully to say, I will raise my boys to be boys of hope, to be wise in their dealings with the world, but never to turn bitter, to press toward justice and reconciliation faithfully, but I will do so without fear. I think of my friend Brian, and saying, I know what God has said in scripture and his promises and the commands that I have, so I will live celibately, and I'm going to trust that one day God will complete all that he's been doing by means of it, and I will be part of a family that will sustain me and hold me in between. When you know what you don't know, and you're willing to press into that with regard to God, suddenly you get the glimmerings of wisdom. We're dependent on God to reveal himself in scripture so that we have that. We're not just dependent on God, this passage says, to reveal himself. I think in verses 7-8, we're also dependent on community. Did you notice where Augur goes, right? He goes, okay, I don't know what I need to know about God, but God has revealed himself in scripture. As soon as I know I don't know, I can turn to scripture and find more about him. Then he goes on to say in verses um, seven and the beginning of eight, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. And it's an interesting turn, but I think he's turning from, if you reveal yourself some, to me, God, then why turn to falsehoods and lies? Now, in part, because the Proverbs and the scriptures talk a lot about lying and being truthful, but I think one of the reasons is this. After you reflect on what you know and don't know about God and turn to scripture to learn more about God, part of what you have to wrestle with is um, your dependence on each other for community, right? Because in the end, lying is incredibly corrosive to community. That's why Paul talks about lying and slander so frequently in the New Testament and why it's so frequently talked about in the Proverbs and in the Psalms. Um, because lying destroys relationships. Why do we lie? I mean, most of us don't lie for fun, though many of us are far more conversant and um, fluent in lying than we would like to admit, I suspect. But I suspect, at least I am, we lie to be in control, don't we? We tell a lie so that we can control the narrative or control the situation. We lie to protect ourselves so that people will think more highly of us or so that we won't be embarrassed. We lie to avoid having to apologize to one another and to ask for forgiveness. We lie to make ourselves sound better than we really are. Sometimes we lie to avoid having to change 
And mostly that's just lying to ourselves, which also then destroys community because when we lie to ourselves, we can't actually engage with integrity, the people around us, right? Think about these kind of lies. I didn't do it. The favorite lie of a small child. I'm fine. Everything's good. The lie that breaks the opportunity for connection and honesty. My wife and I are doing great. The lie, right, that erodes the ability of community to come alongside us to provide healing and hope. It wasn't my fault. The lie that destroys moral accountability. You always do that. The lie that destroys the image of God in Hi again. I have no idea what happened. I apologize for that. Um, <clears throat> if we told the truth, we'd have to depend on other people. We would need forgiveness. If we told the truth, we would need to express our need for love or for community or for help. Um, if we told the truth, we'd be vulnerable. But it's precisely that kind of vulnerability, I think, that permits us to be in community, that helps us to be in community. If we told the truth more frequently, we'd actually experience community. I often think of um, Philip Yancey wrote a fantastic little book called The Church, Why Bother? And I love it, but uh, in it, he um, describes going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous one day. <clears throat> and he was talking with his friends about the amazing sense of community that this group of mere strangers had with one another. Um, and he said, what's the one thing that makes AA so different from the church, which you've walked away from? And Phil said, I thought he was going to use a word like love or acceptance or knowing or maybe even anti-institutionalism. But instead, he said, um, quite quietly, this one word, dependency. And Phil Yancey was surprised. He said, tell me more. And this man said, you know, none of us can make it. None of us can make it on our own. Isn't that why Jesus came? Yet most church people give off a self-satisfied air of piety or superiority. I don't sense them consciously leaning on God or on each other. Their lives appear to be in order. An alcoholic who goes to church feels inferior and complete. Then he says, his, my friend sat in silence for a while until a smile began to crease his face. It's a funny thing, he said at last. What I hate most about myself, my alcoholism, was the one thing God used to bring me back to him. Because of it, I know I can't survive without God. I have to depend on him to make it through each and every day. Maybe that's the redeeming value of alcoholism. Maybe God is calling us alcoholics to teach the saints what it means to be dependent on him and uh, his community here on earth. Right? Because if you've known anybody who's been in recovery, you know they're deeply aware of how dependent they are on other people. On a sponsor that they can call at any moment, I I'm about to take a drink again or to do the behavior that I'm trying to stop. I, I need you. And they know the other person online will tell them, I will be there. I'm here for you now and I will be there if you need me to go, right? It's that deep sense of dependence. It's why so many of us are part of small groups, isn't it? 
It's what we most missed about this time of social distancing. We can talk to one another across Zoom in these really formal time delimited ways, but part of why I think the coffee hour that you do each day, part of why physical small groups are so crucial for us over time is that we need more than just casual friends. We need people who know us deeply enough and thoroughly enough that we can pick up the phone and say, I need you right now. We need the casual interactions where we wound one another and hurt one another, sometimes intentionally and sometimes inadvertently, because it trains us in the disciplines that we need to say, you hurt me and I trust you deeply enough and care for you thoroughly enough that I want you to know that you've hurt me so that we can reconcile because I would hate for this to be a break in our relationship and to give somebody else the opportunity to say, you're right, I wronged you. Will you forgive me? And to hear those healing words, oh, yes, absolutely. Right? It's why we need to be together casually because sometimes it's the casual accountability that we can offer one another that's so crucial. Right? I trust all of us have had experiences, both here at this church, but at other places, where an older Christian pulls us aside and says, hey, I see something really wonderful in you and about you, but I'm a little worried that there's something going on in your life that will keep you from achieving all that God has called you to be. Could, I, could we have a conversation about that? And you've been, it's been embarrassing and painful, but in the end, you look back and say, if that person had not pulled me aside to say, something will get in the way of your following Jesus, and I can see it, and I want to name it with you, we would not be where we are right now in faith. I trust some of you have that experience where you come alongside somebody younger or maybe somebody older to say, I see something beautiful that God is doing in you, and I wanted to take the chance to do it right now. Some of that can occur during formal Zoom times, but we all know, right, it mostly occurs over coffee hours. It occurs over meals together. It occurs over walks that we're taking gently with one another. It's why I hope you'll do the challenge this week to reach out to somebody that you could encourage. That Normally, you might have said to some, them in person during a visit, a vacation, during a casual interaction at church and build those bounds of communities because we actually are dependent on one another. We're dependent on God to reveal himself. We're dependent on one another for community. I think the third thing this passage points out in the beauty of this dependency is we're dependent on God for provision. This Augur pivots then, like, keep me from lies which destroy community because I'm dependent on them if I would tell the truth. Then he says very oddly at one point, um, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. If we're dependent on God to reveal himself and we're dependent on community for health, let me end with this. Um, We're dependent on God for provision, and I suspect COVID-19 and the pandemic has brought this more firmly to mind. It's interesting that Augur says, I want to be saved from both poverty and riches. Why? He doesn't want poverty poverty because he's afraid he will break and steal and blaspheme God. That makes sense. I think all of us can appreciate that. And he says, I don't want riches because I'm afraid I'll ignore God. I won't even think of how I'm dependent on him. <clears throat> I remember um, when this hit me most Um, concretely, it was the first time I went on a trip by myself as an adult for work. And I had a credit card. Now, 
if you're super young, if you're like a millennial or you, you may have had debit or credit cards most of your life. And that's amazing. But for those of us who grew up in an era where it was cash or checks, and if you ran out of checks or cash, there were no ATM machines, right? Those of us who are old enough remember the years where like, if you ran out of cash on a trip, you were really stuck. But I remember getting my first credit card as an adult and going on a business trip and thinking, this is amazing because if I forgot anything or if anything happens, I can whip out this little piece of plastic and I can take care of it. And it was so freeing and so amazing. And all of a sudden I remember thinking, and what it does is it um, somehow erodes my sense of faith because I don't really need to trust God on this trip. I have my visa card. Now, I'm grateful for my credit cards. I use them frequently. Um, but there was something about having to not rely on God at that moment because I could rely on this piece of plastic that I realized if I was not intentional, it would erode my faith. Because I would think of myself as more self-sufficient than I really was. Um, and so Augur does what seems to be incredibly wise. He says, this is what I want, Lord. Um, just give me my daily bread. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Like Israel in the wilderness. I'm reading um, numbers right now in my quiet time, right? Just enough manna for today, but not enough for tomorrow, because that way I'm forced to trust that God will provide. Um, for those of us who are working through the pandemic, right, it's the impulse when you go shopping right now. What's the line between having enough for my family and myself in this and hoarding and trusting that there's enough, right? And with shortages, um, I walk into the store, I'm like, do I need, I'm going to grab another dozen eggs. Do I really need that? Will I take something that a family actually needs because I just feel a need for three dozen and not just two, right? I mean, like all of those questions. It's one of the reasons I'm grateful that I still have to raise support for my role in InterVarsity because there's something about believing that my daily bread comes um, through God's goodness. And I remember friends telling me um, early on in my InterVarsity career, wow, you must have so much faith to do fundraising um, for your um, ministry support. And I said, you know, um, I don't think so because I know my own heart. There's very little faith here. But I actually wonder if it's because I have so little faith that God is making me do fundraising as a missionary because it seems like God is saying, look, everybody else can have a job where they have a stable income and know where the money is coming from because they can still trust me and see me. But you, Greg, you are both so ignorant and self-satisfied. I just need to make the connection a little clearer to you that it will be through the support of other people that you're getting paid. And I'm going to make that obvious to you. Everybody else can have their day jobs. You don't have enough faith for something like that. Go be a missionary. Um, I think it's why as churches, right, and I know at CBC, we work so hard to talk about things like Sabbath and generosity and communion, right? Those are key disciplines which remind you how dependent you are to God for time and space and rest around Sabbath, to be generous with what you have so that um, you can remind yourself that you rely on God, to take communion regularly together as a community, which I know we miss because it reminds me how much we desperately need Jesus. Augur says, look, as soon as you can admit what you do not know and what you do not have, knowledge of God, community with one another, daily provision, then suddenly you're in a place and a posture where you can say, I'm actually dependent 
for somebody to reveal God to me, for community to come alongside me, for God to provide my daily bread. Then he says, then you're actually walking in wisdom. You've acknowledged your dependency and your ignorance, and suddenly you're in a place to listen and to follow and to become. As I was reflecting on this, and particularly that line that Augur has on give me my daily bread, obviously for those of us um, who have grown up in church, whenever somebody says, just give me my daily bread, you begin to go, I've heard that line before. I've prayed that line before. Right? It, It reminds you of the Lord's Prayer. And I began to realize how much this proverb, the set of proverbs from Augur, really reminds us of the Lord's Prayer. Augur says, I don't know what I need to know. I'm just a brute, not a man. But I do believe these things about the knowledge of the Holy One, right? Who's wrapped up the waters in a cloak, who's gathered up um, in his hands the wind, who's gone up to heaven and come back down. There's something about God's greatness and power that Augur is reflecting on as he thinks about the scriptures, which reminds me of those words in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Augur reflects on God's community. Keep me from lies so that I'm honest about myself and honest with other people so that we can have authentic, real community, which reminds me a lot about how, what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Augur then reflects on God's provision, right? Give us this day our daily bread. And maybe the proper response for us as a church at that point is, for yours is the kingdom, the glory, and the power forever. Amen. And so, brothers and sisters, you're a church of very wise people. I know that from having preached and been among you for many, many years. Um, You hold degrees and opportunities and conversations that are filled with the wisdom and the beauty of God and a deep concern for community and God's provision, um, I invite you, uh, lean into dependency in this season when COVID-19 and the pandemic and Station Home encourages us to not be dependent on other people, encourages us to be self-sufficient in our homes, to be isolated, to think we know enough or could ever understand enough. Instead, Um, let's acknowledge what we don't know. We don't know when this will end or how it will end, even though we're still reading daily news reports of people guessing. Um, Turn to God in our lack of knowledge and understanding. Ask him to reveal himself. Let's press in to being dependent on one another in community. Reach out, call, send a note of encouragement, write an email to strangers on the street, to people that God brings to mind this week. To reflect deeply on what it means. For some of us, I know um, employment has been difficult or non-existent. For others of us, um, we're not sure when we came back to the things that we need. Um, What does it mean to trust in God for our provision and our daily bread? And what could it mean for us as a community to provide it for one another in times of need? I thought maybe the best way to end this, since I think Augur does bring us to mind the Lord's Prayer with his request for daily bread, his reminders of God's glory, um, as well as the importance of community, is let me pray the Lord's Prayer um, as we close um, this time together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our sins as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.